Well, hello, hello, church. It's good to see you all today. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to be spending these moments with you. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures uh, this afternoon, and we've been journeying over the past um, couple of months through the Old Testament book of Judges, and so we're going to pick back up where we've been leaving off and and, uh, continue that journey, but we're going to do so by starting in a passage that we kind of jumped over uh, a few weeks ago. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Judges chapter 10, and we'll kind of start Start there, and then we'll move through uh, what we're going to be looking at today. Judges chapter 10, as you're just kind of finding your way there, um, you know, one of the more popular TV shows over the past few years has been that show, The Walking Dead. Uh, You've probably heard of it. Most of you have probably seen it, though you're not going to raise your hand if I ask if you're watching The Walking Dead, because you know what kind of uh, show it is. It is an apocalyptic, uh, zombie apocalyptic show where uh, people are trying to survive this rough and brutal world, and it's a show that's quite uh, graphic and it's quite violent, especially for a small screen production. Well, its popularity just skyrocketed when it first started. Uh, It broke all kinds of ratings, records, and Back in Georgia, where most of the show is filmed, fun fact, the show is filmed where my wife, Kim, uh, grew up, and uh, so it's kind of in her backyard, but if you were to go to Georgia uh, during its peak years and peak seasons, you would find movie theaters actually giving their screens to showing uh, weekly Walking Dead episodes. I mean, the show was just exploding. It seemed as though The Walking Dead was just taking over the world. But over the past couple of years, their ratings have taken a huge hit. Uh, their ratings have plummeted dramatically over the past couple of seasons. And if you, when you kind of dive into why uh, that may be, part of the reason is that the showrunners were employing a flawed storytelling technique, meaning the showrunners were running everything, running the plot of that show from one intense plot line to the next. And they were just ratcheting up the intensity, ratcheting up the suspense, ratcheting up the drama, and they were doing this without providing viewers any interludes or any breaks or any breathers. And as a result, it seems that they just kind of wore their viewers down. And so viewers started leaving or bailing on the show in droves, just worn out by the intensity of the show. Well, the showrunners would have done well to just kind of take a cue from what many of us know to be true, and that is in, when we're dealing with the intensity, the intense nature of what life in this world is like, we need interludes, we need breaks, we need respites. I think we know this not only when we think through kind of how a story may be plotted along, but we know this when we just think about some of the cultures that, that make up this world. There's a reason why back in England they started tea time, right? Just give you a little interlude in the midst of the hustle and bustle of life. There's a reason in why some of the hotter climate cultures of the world that they take siestas and they practice that rhythm because they know that interludes are needed to deal with the intensity of life. And that's what I think the showrunners missed. They were not providing viewers with interludes. They were not providing viewers with breaks, with respites, with breathers. And what they ended up doing was just wearing everyone down because without interludes, people will break down. Without breathers, without breaks, we're going we're gonna to run ragged. Well, the good thing about the book of Judges is that the narrator of this book knows that to be true. And, and so the narrator does not commit the same storytelling techniques as the showrunners of The Walking Dead. And you see this because what happens in the book of Judges and the way it kind of flows is that you get to a point where there's three rather intense stories just kind of strung together. 
But the narrator doesn't stitch these stories directly together. Instead, he provides, he or she, the narrator provides uh, interludes between these, two sto- between these three stories to give us breaks and to give us breathers. For example, the first one happens at the beginning of chapter 10. Now, this is right after Abimelech's story. If you remember that from a couple of weeks, his story ended in a cursed fashion. And right after that intense story where this guy is burning people in towers and his head is crushed by a uh, piece of equipment thrown over out the window of a tower, just a really gory graphic scene, the narrator comes up for air and gives us an interlude here in chapter 10. Because in the first five verses of this chapter, what you have here is you learn about a guy named Tola. Tola judged Israel for 23 years and another guy named Jair, who we're told judged for 22 years. So you have 45 years filling out five verses. And as you read these five verses, there's no references to the same dramatic and intense elements that made up Abimelech's story. There's no references to the same intensities that you're going to see make in uh, Jephthah's story in the very following stretch. There's no signs of external pressure. There's no signs of internal dysfunctions. In fact, when you look at this passage, we're told that Jair's sons rode donkeys Now, this detail suggests to us that this was a relatively peaceful time for the people of Israel. If it wasn't peaceful, they would have been riding horses because horses were for war. Donkeys were ridden for work. And so you get this picture of the people of Israel going about their regular rhythms, engaging in ordinary affairs. And so we're given this break, we're given this breather just before the bomb drops in Jephthah's story. And if you were with us last week, you know that a big bomb was dropped when we heard about Jephthah making this rash vow, a vow that led to him sacrificing his daughter. Once again, something that would fill the screen of Walking Dead, this grotesque moment, this gut-wrenching story, and it ends in a, just a, such a downward moment. But again, the, the narrator doesn't just jump out of that story and into the next. Instead, he gives us another interlude. He gives us a breather. He lets us come up for air. So what happens is you get to the end of chapter 12, and you can turn in your Bibles there to the end of chapter 12, and we'll learn about three more judges. Three more judges in the small span of seven years, guys by the name of Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And their total rule covered 25 years. Once again, there's no references to oppression. There's no references to dysfunction. It seems to be a rather peaceful and prosperous time. There are lots of marriages taking place. Kids and grandkids are being born. And yes, another reference to donkeys. Donkeys are good, right? Work, not war. That's what's happening in that strain. And I think this is an interesting observation and a wonderful way for the narrator of Judges to put the storyline of this book together. Because if we're honest with ourselves and just making this observation, we know that like the overarching storyline of Judges, life in a fallen world can be intense. Life in a fallen world can be challenging. It can be hard. Life in a fallen world is full of sin. It's full of temptations. It's full of stressors. It's full of uncertainties. It's full of sufferings. It's full of all types of external oppositions and internal dysfunctions. Yet in the midst of all that, God is graceful towards his people in providing us with interludes. He provides us with breathers. He provides us with breaks. He allows us to come up for air in the midst of an intense life in a fallen world. I think you see this hinted at in the structure of the book of Judges, but you know this to be true when you consider other passages in the Bible. 
For example, the beginning of the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. And we were told six days of creation. And then on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. And he instituted what's called the Sabbath, the greatest interlude that God has given to us. This Sabbath, this rhythm of six days of work interrupted by one day of rest. And we know that Jesus would tell us that the Sabbath wasn't created for God. The Sabbath was created for you and for me. The Sabbath was designed for, uh, for the intensity of life to be interrupted. And we might find some concentrated times to rejuvenate spiritually and emotionally and physically. The Sabbath provides us with an interlude. An interlude that if you and I do not get on a regular basis, we're going to break down. We're going to be worn out. But not only do we see this when we consider the Sabbath principle that was instituted then and carried out all throughout the scriptures, culminating in relationship with Jesus, but we also see this dynamic when God provides us with interludes by just bestowing blessings upon us, blessings that we might not have, well, blessings that we do not deserve and blessings that come to us in times when we least expect I remember a few years back, my, uh, during a particularly stressful season in planting the Hellas Church and helping get this church started, my wife was carrying an abnormal amount of responsibilities. But in the midst of it all, she had the opportunity to go to Vietnam and visit her family on her mother's side. And so she took this trip to Vietnam right in the thick of everything that was happening here with the church. And, but not long after she got to Vietnam, a mosquito bit her. And this mosquito gave her dengue fever. And so her trip to Vietnam turned into five days in a Vietnamese hospital where she's wrestling with a dengue fever. So she returned home from the trip, and the effects of that disease were still lingering in her life. It was lingering in her body. She didn't have a lot of energy, and she desperately needed rest. And so what I did, I said, Kim, let's uh, don't do anything for the church. You have to unplug completely. I don't want you carrying any of the responsibilities that you were carrying. And at the time, Kim protested. She wasn't sure she could give up the things that were on her plate for the sake of the church and all the things that she believed and everyone believed that needed to be done. And so she wasn't sure she could rest. But then God, God gave an interlude. He brought his rest. He brought his peace. And it came in the form of sensitive, servant-minded disciples who rallied around her and, and responsibilities were distributed. And my wife was able to rest. What is that? Well, it's called an interlude. It's God providing rest to a disciple who desperately needed it. And I share that with you because I know some of you are kind of in the thick of it right now. You're in an, you're in an intense stretch. Life for you is, is tiring right now. You're stressed. You're tired. You're struggling. Everywhere you turn, you seem to find yourself opposed and I want you to know, in light of this observation from the book of Judges, that you, you worship a God of grace. And I want you to know that his interlude is coming. His rest, his peace will be restored to you once again. There's coming a day when you're going to be able to sing with David, Psalm 23, once again. You're going to be able to sing a psalm like, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. That song is going to be restored in your soul once again. It's coming, so don't give up. In the meantime, accept God's gift of a, sabbat, of a Sabbath rhythm in your life. Engage in the, your regular rhythms of work over the course of a week, but be sure to rest on that seventh day. Be sure to take some time to rejuvenate spiritually, physically, and emotionally. That's what we do when we gather together week in and week out. This is what we are seeking to do for each other, to lead each other into that regular experience of rest. But then also keep your eyes open for his unexpected interludes. The moments he will drop into your life that, that will bring breaks that you desperately need and restore peace and rest to your life once again. Singing with David, Psalm 23 again. So I think when you come to the end of chapter 12, that's what you're getting a little hint of, where you have these interludes nestled between these three dramatic stories. And this second interlude comes right before the start of another story concerning a guy named Samson. Now, Samson's perhaps the most famous of all the judges in this book. And what's interesting is that when you step into his story, beginning in chapter 13, that despite the interlude Israel enjoyed, for 40, for 20 some odd years, we are told, verse 1, that the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. Now it's surprising that this is how Israel would, would, would respond to this period of peace and this period of rest that they were given. And yet here they are once again doing what is evil in the Lord's sight. Now, there is a definite article right in front of that word evil that's not translated in our Bibles. This is another moment where the people of Israel are doing what's considered the evil. And what is considered the evil in the Lord's sight is what we would call idolatry. The people of Israel were taking non-gods and elevating them to the position of God in their affections, in their attention, in their lives. They were engaging in that, and the Lord considers that to be the the evil. And this is the seventh and final time that this phrase will show up in the book, that they were doing what is evil in the Lord's sight. From this point forward, there's going to be a new phrase that's introduced to us. It kind of replaces this one, and you'll see it when you get to chapter 17 and again in chapter 21. And in those passages, the phrase goes like this, in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so as we move through the book of Judges, we find two sets of eyes. We have the Lord's eyes, and then we have our eyes, and they're not always seeing eye to eye. In fact, more times than we care to admit, what the Lord looks at and sees as sin, sees as not right, you and I have a tendency to look at with, well, willful ignorance, flat-out indifference, or the assumption of innocence. We see things completely different. I remember an eighth grader walking up to me one time at a, at a student conference I was speaking at and said, Andrew, I don't believe stealing is a sin. And I said, well, why is that? That's a strange thing for you to say to me. Why, why don't you believe stealing is a sin? He said, well, I, don't, I don't, just don't feel it. I don't think God's revealed that to me. I said, well, why don't you open the Bible to Exodus chapter 20? <laughs> Find verse 15, and I want you to read that out loud for me to hear and for you to hear and for everyone around us to hear. And he opened the Bible to Exodus 20, 15. It says, do not steal. 
I said, what do you think about that? He said, <laughs> he said I still don't believe it. I said, why not? He said, well, I do not feel it. You see, that was a moment where this student was going about life, doing what was considered to be right in his own eyes. And we do that every time we give our, when we allow our heart's feelings and our, our, our ultra subjectivity to determine, to determine what is sin, to determine why is sin, to determine all those important things. You see, when the, when the scriptures say that we're doing what is evil in our own eyes, it's referring we're doing things that that correspond with our heart's feelings and our mind's perceptions. And our heart's feelings aren't always in sync with God's feelings. In fact, our eyes can't clearly see what sin is or even why sin is. That's why we need the scriptures. But not only do we need the scriptures, we also need the Holy Spirit. And we need both the scriptures and the Spirit to take God's truths and to help us to see things from God's perspective. The reason God gives us the Bible and the reason God gives us his spirit is so that we can see things with the Lord's eyes and we can assess things from his perspective. And ultimately, what God sees as sin is sin regardless of how you and I may feel. And what God sees as sin is sin regardless of even what the culture around us may, the majority of the culture around us may approve of. I think this is important when you look at verse 1 of chapter 13 because chances are if the Israelites were doing what was considered to be evil in the eyes of the Lord, most of the Israelites were probably in agreement that what they were doing wasn't a big deal. They were probably in agreement with what things were going on in the people of Israel. Otherwise, there would be more protesting. Otherwise, there would be more uh, tension and more disagreement amongst them. And this is one of the things we have to think about when you read about the Israelites doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You've got to understand that they were not plastic cartoon villains. Meaning the people of Israel weren't sitting in a corner rubbing their fingers together thinking, oh, I'm going to do what is the evil today. They weren't conspiring like that because they weren't plastic cartoon villains. They were complex human beings just like you. And as complex human beings, they had their rationales, they had their justifications, they had their explanations for why they were doing the things that they were doing. They could reason with you why what they were doing was okay in their own eyes, despite what the Lord may assess when he would look at what they were doing. They weren't plastic, they were complex, just like you and just like me. And when it comes to the people of Israel, what we're going to see is that their eyes were deceiving them. Their eyes were deceiving them just like yours do and just like mine does. Because sin doesn't always look like sin from our perspective. This is why Thomas Brooks, that guy you, you read earlier, he would say, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. I wonder if that's happening today. I wonder if we can see that occurring if we would just look at the world from the Lord's perspective. This is why you and I must carefully and constantly evaluate our lives in light of the scriptures. This is why we must open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit's surgical strike in our lives where he comes to us and he cuts us so that we can feel once again and he changes our perspective so that we can see things the way the Lord sees them. This is why we need the scriptures and this is why we would also need one another. We need the personal accountability that comes from gospel believing people. We want to encourage one another and help each other see things from the Lord's perspective. Israel kind of lost that in this moment. Because once again, they are doing what was evil in the Lord's sight. And we are told 
that what happened to them is that they were handed over to the Philistines. They were handed over to their enemies. Now the Philistines will be the biggest thorn in Israel's side going forward. The Philistines were a savvy, ambitious, and strong people. They would oppress Israel for 40 years. And even after that period ends, they would continue to be a thorn in Israel's side, long into the reigns of King Saul and King David. But what's interesting about the storyline at this point in time is that Israel doesn't respond to their oppression the same way they had before. If you notice, we jump from verse 1 into verse 2, and what is missing is that the people of Israel do not one time, they not one time are they crying out for deliverance. They don't ask God for help. And here's what I think is going on in this moment. It seems as though the people of Israel have gotten so used to being oppressed, so used to being taken over by external forces, so used to it that now they're embracing servitude and they're embracing oppression as normal. Perhaps they were thinking, this is just the way life is. And this is the way life will always be. This is why when you get into chapter 15, verse 3, when there are some leaders who suggest, you know, maybe, maybe the Philistines need to be overthrown, most of the people respond in that moment surprised at the suggestion. They don't think that's a possibility. They're not even sure it's necessary. So when you get to the beginning of Samson's story, you find a people with a broken spirit. The people of Israel are broken. They can't imagine life apart from oppression, apart from servitude. And I'm wondering if you've been there before. Have you ever been there in your journey with Jesus? Have you ever reached the point when you've given up in your fight against sin? Maybe you've succumbed to temptation so much that you feel defeated and hopeless. And you resign yourself thinking, well, I'm never going to shake it, so what's the point even resisting? And so maybe your spirit's been broken at times and you feel so much oppression. You feel so enslaved to the bondage of your sin that you don't think you'll ever be free again. You don't think rest and peace will ever come your way. Well, that's where the people of Israel are at the start of this story. But here's the good news. That's not where God is. Although that's where Israel is, God is not there Because what you're going to find in this moment is that God, in verse 2, begins to move towards the people of Israel. He moves towards them for their good, despite the fact that they've given up. He's moving towards them, despite the fact that they're not even asking him for help. He is intervening in their situation because he loves his people. And he's not going to give up on them, even though it seems they are giving up on themselves. And notice how his intervention comes, beginning in verse 2. It says, there was a certain man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, it is true that you were unable to conceive and have no children, but you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, please be careful not to drink wine or beer or to eat anything unclean. For indeed, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth. And he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. So here it is. God, the people of Israel are oppressed. They're used to it. They're accepting it as normal. They're not even looking to God to be delivered. But God moves towards them anyways. And he decides to give them a deliverer. So he wants to bring them a rescuer. But what is interesting about this moment is that the way he's going to bring about the deliverer is through a woman who's never been able to have children before. He comes to a couple that has no kids and have been unsuccessful in having kids, and he's told them, look, 
I'm going to give you a son. And your son is going to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. What I love about this is that you have a people being swept up into a story that requires nothing from them except their inability. They're going to be used despite themselves. And the reality is when it comes to your redemption, when it comes to your deliverance, you realize you don't bring anything to the table except your need to be redeemed. You bring nothing into your relationship with God except for the fact that you need God. That's where the Christian life starts. This is why Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have nothing to give, nothing to offer. I'm going to come to them. I'm going to be everything for them. This is what he's saying to this couple. Saying, look, I'm going to deliver Israel, and I'm going to take the fact that you have no ability within yourself to have a child, and I'm going to overcome that for you. I'm going to be strong for you. I'm going to be powerful for you. I'm going to give you a son Now, this isn't the first and it wouldn't be the last time that God would bring a special child into the world through a barren woman. We've seen this before. We saw this when God approached a woman named Sarah and gave her Isaac, referred to as the child of promise. He came to a woman named Hannah and gave her Samuel, who'd become a great prophet. He came to Elizabeth in the New Testament and gave her John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And then, of course, the most famous of all, God would come to a young virgin named Mary and drop Jesus into her womb. Miraculous intervention, miraculous provision, the, power, the powerful activity of God at work in the lives of these ladies to bring about leaders who would advance God's redemptive agenda. And in each one of those cases, he would do so by bringing these children to be in a miraculous fashion. This is what God is promising here. But there's more than just the promise that God's going to intervene and provide someone to deliver them. There's also the dynamic that he makes clear that he has some expectations, some holy expectations for both the child who would be born and the mother and the father who would raise the child. So you pick up in verse 6, and it says, Then the woman went and told her husband, a man of God came to me. He looked like the awe-inspiring angel of God. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. He said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Therefore, do not drink wine or beer or do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite, Nazarite to God from birth until the day of his death. And since Manoah wasn't there when the angel appeared, he then prayed to the Lord saying, please, Lord, let the man of God you sent come again and to teach us and Come again to us and teach us what we should do for the boy who will be born. God listened to Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman. She was sitting in the field, and her husband Manoah was not with her. Now, Manoah never seems to be in the right place at the right time. He's always missing out. And so the woman runs quickly to her husband and tells him, The man who came to me the other day has just come back. So Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he asked, Are you the man who spoke to my wife? I am, he said. Then Manoah asked, when your words come true, what will be the boy's responsibilities and work? What will he do? The angel of the Lord answered Manoah, your wife needs to do everything I told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine or drink wine and beer. And she must not eat anything unclean. Your wife must do everything I have commanded her. And so by the end of verse 14, God's holy expectation of this child and of the family as a whole have been stated three times. That this child of promise, this child who would come 
about through the miraculous provision of God would be set apart for a special purpose. He would be a Nazarite. The word Nazarite refers to someone who is completely consecrated to God. And in the Old Testament, it would refer to a man who belonged entirely to the Lord. Now, Nazarites were talked about in Numbers chapter 6, and they had a high level of commitment in their relationship with God. They were not allowed to cut their hair. They were not allowed to eat or drink produce from the vine, whether it was alcoholic drinks or non-alcoholic drinks. If it came from a vine, they had to withstand. But we're also told in Numbers chapter 6 that they couldn't touch any dead body. They had to be set apart in some dramatic ways. Now, ordinarily... If a man wanted to become a Nazarite, he volunteered for that role. He would voluntarily say, look, I want to become a Nazarite. I want to devote myself to God in this way. But what's interesting about the story of Samson is that he doesn't get that choice. He's made a Nazarite apart from any volition on his part. He's not asked about it. He has no say in the matter. God just sets him apart before he entered this world. And here's why I think that's significant. Rather than Rather than making a deliverer out of someone that, that was already available, God in this moment says, look, I'm going to make one from scratch. I'm going to bring one about from scratch. And here's why this is so important for us. This is important because you and I, if we didn't have this story and if we didn't have God working in this way, the temptation would be for you to read through the book of Judges and walk away thinking that God is always reactive in redemption and he's never proactive. But here in this moment, you have God proactively pursuing the redemption of his people. Because Samson's story, more than any other book, any other story in this book, points to this proactive nature of God. And that's an important dynamic because our heart should find rest and peace in the fact that God proactively pursues our redemption. He's not reactive in our redemption. This is why when you get all the way to the New Testament, God makes it clear that, look, I'm going to bring about the Savior from scratch. He's going to come to the world from outside of the world, and he's going to do something for people that they never thought possible. You get to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, and we're told about one who is far greater than Samson, Jesus the Messiah, and listen to what is said. It says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. In other words, God had decided to send Jesus into the world long before the world was ever created. That God was proactive in his pursuit of our redemption, of our deliverance, of our salvation. Now, what that should do for your heart is it should convince you that you are loved. It should convince you that you are wanted. It should convince you that you are treasured and that you are valued because you weren't an afterthought in God's mind. You were one of the earliest thoughts in his mind where he says, look, I'm going to create the world. There's going to be all this stuff happen, and I'm already planning who I'm going to send in the world to save it. God is proactive in redemption. He is not reactive. This means, Christian, you are pursued. You are wanted. You are desired. You are treasured by the God of the universe because we have a God who proactively proactively pursues his people. So God is being proactive in this moment. He's raising up a deliverer from scratch. But again, this deliverer would have some expectations attached to his life. He would be expected to live, you might say, a holy life. And Samson's mom and dad were expected to raise them to live a holy life. 
You see, Nazarites in the, Israel, in the nation of Israel at that time, they kind of illustrated what it meant for a person to belong to God. Saying, look, if you really belong to God, your life should be noticeably and discernibly different from everyone else's or from those who do not belong to God. Now, we have to think about this because not every person in Israel was a Nazarite. Not every person in Israel was expected to live a holy lifestyle in the same way as a Nazarite. But we do know that the people of Israel belonged to God. And we do know that the people of Israel were expected to live holy, set apart, different kinds of lives. We know this from Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, listen to what it said. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Meaning, you now belong to me, so you must be holy because I am holy. And that same expectation would carry over and apply to the Christians in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Meaning you belong to Jesus. Then holiness should, be, should characterize your life. Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. That is, a people who belong to God. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That we are to be, that anyone, anyone who belongs to God by way of faith in him, by way of trust in the Messiah, they are expected to live a holy life. But here's the challenge of this. I say God desires and expects a holy people. But some of you heard that and you translated that in your mind to mean that God desires and expects a moral people. Now there's a big difference between being a holy people and a moral people. It's the same difference that would exist between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a moral people, but Jesus was holy. So we might think through the differences of being a holy people and a moral people this way. You know, moral people are primarily concerned with externals, and they oftentimes measure themselves by what they don't do. Holiness, however, touches on externals, but is far more penetrating and far more pervasive, getting after the heart of people. You see, moral people may refrain from wrong actions, but holy people grow in the hatred of the very thought of doing wrong. Moral people are driven by what others perceive them to be. Holy people are driven by what God wants them to be. Moral people check boxes of an impersonal list of do's and don'ts. Holy people consider what brings most pleasure to our Heavenly Father's heart. Moral people keep a meticulous record of good deeds to win favor with God. But holy people grieve over the fact that nothing they do is free from sinful or selfish motivations And what that means is that holy people are those who recognize every blessing, every gift from God comes to us on the merits of his grace and not our goodness. Holy people see that. They recognize that. Moral people live by their own definition of right and wrong, and they often impose it upon others, trying to build a fence around everyone else's house. But holy people are directed by the scriptures, filled with the Spirit, 
And holy people relish the freedom that Jesus purchased for us. And holy people are able to discern the difference that freedom allows between those who belong to the same Savior. Holiness is pervasive, affecting the totality of a person, changing how we think, how we feel, and, how, and the things that we do. God wants a holy people, not a moral people, and there's a big difference between the two. But if you are considering the American evangelical subculture, you're going to find that the American evangelical subculture is comprised by a lot of moral people. A lot of moral people. This is why church's ministry efforts become nothing more than systematic attempts to change people's behavior. Just wanting to change people's external behavior, failing to recognize that our problems are rooted in the heart. And if grace doesn't get to the heart, nothing that really matters ever changes. And this problem, this dynamic in, our, in the subculture of Amer- American evangelicalism is kind of brought to light every election year. Every election cycle exposes this because lots of voters will check the Christian box on their senses. Lots of voters will check the Christian box on their senses, believing that what our country needs most is a moral majority. Assuming that God is dependent upon a moral majority. But do you understand that if we're reading the scriptures closely, and if we're paying attention to the history of the church, and we're considering what what it means to live a holy life, do you understand that God's delight is to work through a holy minority, not necessarily a moral majority? God's never been dependent upon a moral majority. He's always done his greatest work in the world through a holy minority, through men and women whose hearts are being changed by the grace and the goodness of God in Christ. And that change is having an effect and an impact on the watching world. And so what we want, what we desire, isn't a moral majority. We want a holy minority that is completely consecrated to the Lord. Men and women saying, God, I belong to you. I am yours, and I'm going to live my life according to your grace, according to your goodness. I'm going to listen to you and do what you say. I'm going to believe that you love me. I'm going to believe that you want me. I'm going to believe that you desire me. I'm going to believe that when Christ lived and died and rose again, he did that for me. I'm going to press into that reality and let that reality melt my heart. And as my heart is melted, as my heart changes, that's when other things will begin to change too. You see, God desires a holy people, not necessarily a moral people. This is why Jesus, the night before he would go to the cross, he would pray the prayer that he did, asking the Father to sanctify his disciples, sanctify them according to truth. Your word is truth, and that word sanctify means to make holy. Let them be different. Let them be set apart. Let them be consecrated. Let them belong to you. That was Jesus' prayer for his disciples, and those disciples would then essentially change the world because they would go out and they would testify to the gospel of God's grace. They would talk about Jesus. They would love in ways that were sacrificial and risky and God changed everything, just mightily moved in the world through a holy minority and that's what we want here in this city too. We want God to work through a holy minority to make an impact in the city of Seattle and to make an impact in the world around us. So God desires holiness from us. But then that creates some tension because as you keep moving through this story, you begin to discover that without such holiness, people like you and I can't enjoy God. People like you and I can't really enjoy experiencing God and, and worshiping God and being in God's presence. Manoah and his wife are about to learn this. 
So you keep reading in the passage in verse 15. Please stay here, Manoah told him, referring to the angel of the Lord, and we will prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to him, if I stay, I won't eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not know he was the the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to him, what is your name so that we may honor you when your words come true? Why do you ask me my name? The angel of the Lord asked him. Since it is beyond your understanding, meaning my name is holy, it's different, it's far above you. Manoah took a young goat and a grain offering and offered them on a rock to the Lord who did something miraculous while Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up from the altar to the sky, the angel of the Lord went up in its flame. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell face down on the ground. The angel of the Lord did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah realized it was the angel of the Lord. We're certainly going to die, he said to his wife, because we have seen God. Meaning they're encountering the presence of God in that moment. But his wife, a woman of great faith, a woman of great awareness of who God is and what God is like, listen to what she says, speaks sobriety into the situation. She says, if the Lord had intended to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering from us. And he would not have shown us all these things or or spoken to us like this. So here's the tension that's being, inca- being created in this moment. Manoah and his wife realize that this angel of the Lord is no ordinary angel. It is the angel of the Lord. And we said several weeks back that the angel of the Lord is a reference to God himself. It is the second person of the Trinity, a, a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament before Jesus would arrive in the New And so he would come on this form and he was delivering this message. He was engaged in this situation. And when Manoah and his wife realize it, they think, okay, well, we're going to die because God is holy and we're not and we can't be in the presence of a holy God and enjoy that encounter unless something happens, unless something changes. This is why the angel of the Lord would say, hey, don't sweat it. Uh, Make an offering. Make an offering to the Lord. In other words, remember that your relationship with God is a mediated relationship. It is a relationship that is mediated through sacrifices. It is mediated through offerings that your relationship with God now is different from what it was in the Garden of Eden. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, you had Adam and Eve enjoying the immediate presence of God. They walked with God. They enjoyed God. They were naked and unashamed. There was no mediation between them and God. They had immediate access with him. But then sin came and what happened? That ruined everything. Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden, and all of a sudden, human beings found themselves in a situation where sacrifices were required for them to encounter God and enjoy it once again. And so basically, you have a situation where it shifts from having immediate fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden to a mediated fellowship with God now. And so the question is, what form of mediation will our relationship with God rely upon? And this gets us to the heart of this moment. The angel of the Lord tells them to, off, to make a burnt offering and a grain offering. They do. They set it up on this stone. They light it on fire. And the fire begins to rise to, heavens, to the heavens. And what does the angel of the Lord do? The angel of the Lord then steps in the middle of it. He identifies himself with that offering. And he rises with its flames. Meanwhile, Manoah and his wife are doing nothing but standing back and watching. 
Do you understand that in this moment you are given a picture of the gospel? A picture of the gospel when God himself would enter the womb of the Virgin Mary and he would live a holy, sacred, set-apart life only to go to the cross. And what was he doing on the cross? He was offering himself up. He was identifying himself with all the sacrifices that Israel ever gave God in their worship of God, saying, look, all those sacrifices, all those offerings, they all pointed to me. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross to do everything necessary for our relationship with God so that now we can be in the presence of God and enjoy it. We can be in the presence of God and not die. This is what Manoah and his wife are realizing because God accepted this offering and this offering would point them or point us to a picture of the Savior to the picture of the one who would come and live and die and rise again. This is why the New Testament would refer to Jesus as the mediator of our relationship with God. Meaning if you want to know God, you have to go to Jesus. If you want relationship with God, you have to trust in Jesus. He mediates that relationship. He is the offering that God accepts on our behalf. This means when it comes to your salvation and your redemption, the only thing you have to contribute to that is your need for redemption and your need for salvation. And when you get to that point, what do you do? Well, you stand back and you watch Jesus. You stand back and you turn the eyes of your faith towards Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You trust in Jesus. And he redeems you. He delivers you. He brings you into the ultimate interlude. He brings you into peace with God. He brings you into rest with God. He brings you into the ultimate Sabbath so that you can live your life in the midst of an intense fallen world with peace. You can live your life in the midst of an intense and fallen world with a, with a restful soul because you have relationship with God that is not dependent upon your morality. It's dependent upon the holiness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus. This is what 1 Corinthians was getting after in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where we are told that Jesus is our righteousness He is our holiness. He is our sanctification. And he is our redemption. This is why we're all about Jesus. This is why we are a Jesus people. This is why we teach the Bible in a way to get to Jesus because he's our everything. And so my prayer for each of you tonight is that you would find rest, you would find peace, you would find solace in Christ, in your relationship with God through Jesus. Well, let's pray.